If the saying is true, that necessity is the mother of invention, then perhaps boredom is the father of discovery. For boredom can ironically produce an unexpected intense mental engagement. Today, we bring you an extremely interesting show on the topic of boredom. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. I'm so bored. <laughs> oh, the tables have turned. Now you're the shut-in. i got to do something to keep them going crazy. Oh, come on. There's lots of ways to pass the time. Hitch up your pants. <sighs> boring people, boring lives. Wake up to the same nine to five Drinking coffee, fight off the night Cause we boring people, boring It is a wonder and a thrill to have on Watching America with me today, Manoush Zomorodi. Now, most of you probably know her from her very successful podcast, uh, her initial one, which was Note to Self, which came out of WNYC in New York City. She's also known to a vast NPR audience for other purposes, such as the new host of the TED Radio Hour, although she's been doing it for some time now, so perhaps I should drop the word new. She was born in New Jersey. She went to Georgetown University. She worked for Reuters and for the BBC News, which is no small feat, I can tell you. And she actually worked for BBC News for 10 years, no less. Uh, she now lives in Brooklyn. She's married. She has two children, I believe one 10 and the other seven. And she is an avid mother, an avid thinker. But she's also learned the importance of sometimes shutting down. Why, you may ask. For the purpose of creation, hence her book, Bored and Brilliant. Good things can come from boredom. Welcome to Watching America, Manoush Zomorodi. Hi, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's difficult circumstances for everyone. Yes. Um, but I will say it's, it's a beautiful day uh, here on the East Coast, and I'm actually standing in the backyard and getting in some sun. So, oh, good. Um, good for you. So th there are good things about working from home. <laughs> <laughs> are you in Brooklyn at this moment? We're actually in New Jersey. Oh, my smart, parents. smart. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, 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 mm -hmm. that's good. How are the children surviving with all of this? Uh, you know, they are doing okay. So they're a little older than you mentioned now. One okay. is 12. The other just turned 10 last week. And, um, you know, remote learning, the little one is kind of over it. I think it's it's not, you know, she doesn't get to see her friends. It's not yes. the same. It's I think it's exhausting for little bodies to sit still for hours at a time. Um, the older one kind of seems to be thriving. He does his thing on Zoom all morning long and Right now, he's sunning himself like a turtle in the yard as well, and then he'll go back for the afternoon. So, you know, I see, I see that, like, for some kids, it could be really tough, and for others, it's kind of great. They're kind of enjoying it in weird ways. 
Well, let's get into one of many areas of expertise and and brilliance in of itself that you uh, <laughs> obviously display, and and that is uh, the the addressing of the issue of being bored. And bored is not necessarily a negative thing, as you have been sharing with people for uh, some time. Boredom, in actual fact, uh, as you see it, can be an entree, can be an entrance into uh, tremendous cre- creativity. On the way in mm. today. Uh, I was just thinking about examples of this that came to mind. And I thought of Brandon Tartikoff, who used to be the president mm, of, uh, mm-hmm. of NBC. And he came up with the idea when he was bored, he was tapping his pencil on his desk and he wrote just two phrases or one phrase with two words, MTV cops. And from that came <laughs> Miami Vice. And then I thought, and then I thought, uh, Manoush, of my home city of Manchester, England. And there was a certain young woman who once upon a time got upon a train in Manchester Victoria Station and was driving, or rather riding, I should say, down to Manchester, uh, excuse me, to London. And in the process, she took out a, a pencil and she wrote on a small strip of paper just two words, school for wizards. And obviously that was J.K. Rowling. Of course. Uh, in both instances, boredom was the instigator, if you will, or the genesis of yeah. brilliance and money and delight and fame. How did yeah. you hit upon this yourself? Yeah. So, okay. So for me, there was a moment, it was in 2014, and I don't know how else to describe it other than that I went to sit down and write out some ideas. And that's really, I have to say, I've been very fortunate. It's kind of my favorite thing to do is sit down and just have ideas pour out of me of weird things I want to do on my podcast or strange vacations we could take or whatever else. And I sat down to come up with ideas for an episode that we were doing and there was just nothing there. And I can't, you know, I've had writer's block before and it wasn't like writer's block. The only way I can describe it is really that it was though sand had been poured into my cranium and I found it very disturbing. And I was like, what is going on? And it kind of lingered this feeling that I had. And I tried to sort of pinpoint in my life what had potentially changed o- over the, the last year or two. And to me, the, the more my hypothesis became that all the little moments in my life, those little cracks in your day, when you are, or we used to be waiting in line for coffee or waiting to pick up the kids from school or, you know, dull things like folding laundry for hours on end, all of those little moments in my day were now filled because now the minute I had time, well, I could be productive, right? Why sit on the subway and look at people's feet when I could be getting through my inbox? Why stand there waiting for my latte when I could text my husband about what was going on that night? Why waste all these precious moments in the day when I could be what I thought was be productive, Um, And so, but I thought, well, maybe that moment when I get bored and then quickly do something that diminishes that feeling, maybe that's actually a mistake. And it really led me to want to understand, A, what happens in our brains when we get bored? B, what what, what could happen to our brains if we never get bored? And then finally, the biggest question to me was like, am I the only one who's feeling this? And so... I asked my listeners, you know, are you concerned about your creativity or your, do you feel like your brain has been altered in some way? And could it be potentially because of your, our digital habits? And would you be interested in experimenting with me um, to understand how boredom works? And then seeing if we got more of it into our lives, 
what kind of difference that could make. And what I discovered interviewing neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists is that we're an extraordinary we're at an extraordinary moment um, in terms of under, understanding brain function when it comes to boredom or also what is called mind wandering, so daydreaming. Uh, is it fair to say, and I, I've just jotted this down while speaking to you, that really being bored has become a strange type of luxury. Is that an apt description? Uh, that's interesting. Um, I, I would disagree with that um, uh, because I think we, we've gotten to that point where we see it as a luxury. But I, is it okay if I first explain uh, neurologically what happens in our brains and then sure, you can be sure, the absolutely. decider of that? Okay, so when you get bored, um, that could be because you are ironing shirts and your mind begins to wander or because you're lying on the ground and staring at the wall. Uh, you ignite a network in your brain called the default mode, and it is in the default mode um, researchers now understand that mm-hmm. we do our most original thinking, our most creative problem solving, and we do something called autobiographical planning. Uh, and so autobiographical planning is fascinating. It's looking back at your life, taking notes of the highs and lows, weaving together a narrative for yourself, literally telling yourself the story of you, how you got to this very moment, and then casting forward into the future, deciding what your goals are, how you're going to reach those goals. So it's almost like cognitive time travel. It's really cool, incredibly powerful. And it needs time though, right? And so the minute you feel bored and those of us look at our phones, we interrupt that that neurological flow as it were. Um, and so back to your question about whether boredom is a luxury. Yes, it does require time. And time is well, I would say prior to the pandemic, something that very that that really many of us were stretched. We we didn't feel like we have had haven't had time, and so it's been fascinating for me to look at the pandemic for those of us who are fortunate enough um, not to be ill or have family members who are ill. That whether we can think of this as a as a gift in some ways that we have been given time. Well, in psychological and sociological uh, terms, there is the usage of the term or phrase reframing. So how is that distinct from, if you will, autobiographical planning? I mean, a lot of it is the uh, attitude, if you will, that we bring to a series of events. How does that parlay with with this concept of reframing? Are you consciously reframing or does your subconscious do it? Yes. So, okay, I love that. It's a very meta question because... Just by virtue of using the word boredom, we have framed uh, the that human state as being something bad and to be avoided at all costs, right? The French uh, use the word ennui. Mm-hmm. Maybe your mom said to you, uh, only boring people get bored. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to be bored. And therefore, we have framed it as sitting there and allowing our minds to wander as something that is lazy or dangerous. Uh, but if we start to reclaim that word boredom, we can reframe that idea of doing nothing and allowing ourselves to mind to allowing our mind to wander. And we can reach something. I think it helps to think of it positively because in fact, you can do something called positive constructive daydreaming, which leads to those uh, mental delights that I mentioned. Having said that, if you think of boredom as something bad, maybe, that makes a difference. And you might do something else people do when they daydream, which is that they ruminate. They go over something terrible that's happened over and over again. I shouldn't have said that. Why did I do that? This is terrible. How are we going to fix this? Um, So, and that has been shown to lead to potentially to depression and anxiety. So 
my theory was, and as I asked my listeners, you know, reframe the idea of boredom. Um, think of it as something potentially positive to bring into your life, and let's see what happens. And that was an experiment that uh, 20,000 listeners did with me uh, about five years ago now. It's amazing to think of. So for one week, we every day we tried a different uh, behavior change in our life, and then we tracked the results to see what would happen. Manoush, I don't remember the 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 content of the book, but I do remember the title. It was from about probably 15, 20 years ago. And the title was called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. And, mm. and, and the concept was is that we're so entertained that there is a dearth of opportunity to experience life. Everything's vicarious. Certainly, you've written about tweets, Instagrams. Um, I am particularly addicted, like many males, to YouTube. Um, I'm a creative kind of person. I like to write. I like to paint. I like to do the, the, the artistry stuff. But it sucks up my attention, and I have to avidly fight to pull myself away. Sometimes I dare mm-hmm. I say at 2.30 a.m. from watching one YouTube after another after another <laughs> after another. Uh, how does one regain their life? I know that you were using for a while a a a, a app which actually tracked how much time you were spending on other forms of, yeah. of media. Yeah. So at the time when we did this experiment with our listeners, they're now on all of our phones, you can turn on the screen time tracker. It's built into all of our phones. But one of the reasons that happened was because, you know, finally the tech companies started to understand that we didn't all feel great about using their products all the time. And, you know, for us, it was interesting to see of the people who tracked um, themselves, 90% of them cut down on their minutes. But what I found, you know, very unscientific data, I should add, however, it is mentioned in a lot of different academic papers. Um, but what I found so interesting were the stories that people told us about what they ended up changing in their lives. So remember this guy, Billy from Brooklyn, he was like, I feel as though I am coming out of a mental hibernation, that I pick up my guitars more, I'm sleeping better, um, so many people who told me they came up with amazing ideas for their business or they finally figured out a way to finish their dissertation or just these big problems that they felt were looming over them or just even smaller things. Like I would get notes about noticing the worms that were digging, coming up out of the the wet lawn in the morning, all these tiny little moments. But the key thing was, is that people thought about what would give their lives meaning, what meant something to them. Other than, you know, uh, as much as we all, a a good tweet is good to enjoy, um, it's not going to give you meaning for the rest of the day necessarily. So I think what it was is a kind of reset for people um, that they could, when they purposefully rethought their digital habits and they used their technology as the tool that it is supposed to be to enhance our lives rather than the taskmaster it's become, as you just described, um, that that could make a big difference. Now, I should be clear, I am a huge advocate of technology, um, but I think we just have to be more purposeful about how we use it and make sure that it is serving us instead of us serving it. If you're just joining us, I am absolutely thrilled and delighted to have somebody I admire very much, Manoush Zomorodi. Uh, she is a name probably familiar to many uh, NPR people from her long-standing, very successful uh, podcast series called Note to Self. And then she ventured out independently. And now most of us know her, of course, from NPR's TED Radio Hour. Let me just ask you about something you said. You said at one point, we confuse activity with reactivity. What did you mm. mean by that? 
Yeah. So I think what I what I've been referring to is this idea that it has in our culture we reward um, quick responses, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I know, and what then that can take that can look like many different ways. In my world, that looks like responding to a Slack message very quickly, or getting back on email, or uh, getting back to my kids' teachers, making you know just this constant reactivity, responsiveness, and I can check all the things off my list and say, I was productive today. And yet, yes, today I was productive, but when it comes, and by being responsive, I I got the things on my list done, but that doesn't really necessarily serve me in terms of longer term goals and making sure that, uh, that, and in fact, I have to not be responsive in order to reach those other goals, those, those other bigger goals, like what do I want to do with my life or how am I going to get through this financial crisis? It might be for some people right now, or how am I going to help my kids who are really struggling through this period? That might require you to go for an extremely long walk and not listen to anything and really work through and let your mind wander. And instead of, you know, in meditation, they tell you if a, if a thought comes along, let it pass. Uh, I would say that for this purposes, uh, follow the thought, see where it goes and leads you. Um, and don't let your phone interrupt you because, uh, as Cal Newport, a professor at Georgetown university, uh, he describes it as the deep work that our brains need to do. Um, there was a, a survey done by CEOs a few years ago, uh, asking, you know, asking CEOs, what is the number one quality that you are looking for in your job applicants? And they said, creativity, uh, and the ability to do that deep thinking, you know, start with 10 minutes of listening to, to nothing and go for a walk. And if that's hard for you, okay, acknowledge it and then build up to 20. In my experience, the first 20 minutes are the worst. They're super uncomfortable. My body hurts. I just want to go home. And then something clicks at 20 minutes. And I, I, maybe you've had this feeling as well that you are just there's something transcendent. Your mind begins to go and your body suddenly loosens up. And, and that's the moment that you're waiting for to see where the weird idea, your brain will take you what it needs to figure out. Well, let me ask you if you can, and it's an extremely difficult question. And I recognize that before uh, asking you it. Is there a, a difference between mindfulness and if you will, a type of non-mindfulness in as far as yeah. they, most, they, they both have benefits, I presume, obviously. But what is the, the, the distinction? That's correct. So there's actually a, a chapter in the book about this. So uh, mindfulness, meditation, this idea of um, not allowing your mind to wander, but being right there in the present uh, and in observing something actually ignites a different network of your brain. And it's the default mode that has this sort of creative thinking that allows you to connect ideas together. And then, you know, what is original thinking? It's taking one idea and another one and smashing them together and coming up with something new. And that is actually not what mindfulness is. Like I'm looking at right now, actually, I'm looking at clover down at my feet. And the idea would be to be present with the clover, right? To look at the outline of the leaf and the lines and the veins in there and to just be with the clover, whereas I would say with uh, the default mode um, and boredom, you would be like, clover, huh, clover. I knew used to know a cow named clover. 
she was a really nice cow. Those farmers, I wonder what happened to those farmers. Would I like to be a farmer? I'm not really sure. I want, you know, and you're following where your sort of stream of consciousness goes. Um, some people think that inner voice uh, can be dangerous because it can lead you down a difficult path. But my, my inclination has been that if we understand better how our brains work and we most importantly observe our own behavior and tendencies that we can use that knowledge to uh, to prod ourselves in some ways to, to get to that positive, constructive stuff that we talked about. There is this wonderful twilight period of time where we just let our minds go randomly. I mean, I'm experiencing, as most of America is, and the world for that matter, um, waking up in the morning, everything seems reasonably normal. We look around, we say, mm. yes, there's my sideboard or, you know, a side mm-hmm. table. I mean, uh, there's the foot of my bed, there's my cat or animal, whichever one may have, a dog or something. And we look out the windows mm-hmm. and about two minutes following that, it's like, oh, yes, the world has changed. Yeah. How do you handle that? How do you personally handle that? I think there's an amazing possibility, which is less, what am I going to do today? But because, yes, you got to get through the day, do wake up, do take a shower, do try to you know care for yourself and those around you. Uh, but I think there's also an opportunity to say, what am I going to do differently when when I go back to maybe not normal because we're not going to be back to normal. But when I go back into the world, am I going to do something differently because of this feeling that I have Um I, that's what I'm trying to do right now. I haven't found the answer, but I'm just kind of allowing myself to observe what is really striking me right now, what is hitting me emotionally, what what I might what action I might want to take based on those feelings. And and I think you know a lot of us are reconsidering what we value, um, whether that's uh, the the places where we shop, um, you know, the way that they treat their their uh, employees um, or the people in our lives who maybe we took for granted before this and maybe the people who work in the grocery stores and other places. And, and maybe it's a small thing that you want to do that you want to be part of your, your neighborhood more. And what does that look like? Does that look like volunteering to you, a friend with an elderly person? Maybe it's that, maybe it's uh, a collective action that you want to be part of and you want to, uh, make sure that more people have health care in this country, whatever it is that you decide. But I do think there's an amazing moment that is here where we have to harness that weird feeling, that moment that you described, Dr. Allen, where you are like, oh, yeah, the world is changed. That That's, that's an, an amazing, amazing potential spark for real change um, to hopefully make more people's lives better. And we, we can't, it's really not about one person. This is about this collective change and and um, appreciation for for this country and for our families and for our lives and for the clover that's beneath my feet right now. And, and what an opportunity. I, I want to take you back to something that is striking because as I listen to you, I see how this has actually been borne out in your life. You had a BBC manager who once said to you, don't bring the problem. <laughs> bring the solution. As I look at the, if you will, the the canon of your work thus far, you seem to have been doing nothing but that. Hmm, Alan, that is interesting. So, yeah, a lot of people have asked me, what is the best 
professional advice you've ever received. And for a long time, I said that it was uh, my boss at the BBC who said, when you're dealing with management, don't bring them a problem, bring them a solution. Mm. Now that I'm older, I understand how self-serving that advice was. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly when you're newly hiring somebody. (laughs) Let me tell you, kid, this is how you do it. You make everything easy for me. Exactly. Exactly. So I feel torn. You know, on the one hand, I think that advice served me really well. Uh, I was a pretty frictionless employee. I had always thought it through before I went to deliver the problem. And I have to say, that is a way of getting what you want, because if you're going to come up with a solution, mm. why, not, why not come up with one that works for you, right? Right, exactly. Um, on the other hand, you know, I'm starting to understand that that uh, propagates a sort of self-reliance and independence that sometimes maybe isn't the way to go. On an upcoming episode of TED Radio Hour, we hear from uh, former CEO Lorna Davis, who talks about what she thinks needs to happen in business. And she says, we need the demise of hero culture, this idea that I've set the goal and here it is. You know, think of Steve Jobs and his black turtleneck. We wanted to see if we could put a computer in your pocket. And we did. Here it is. <laughs> but And which is great and awesome. And we all want to do that. And I think in the last decade, you know, we've all kind of taken on some of that Silicon Valley, like, go lone wolf, go get them, change the world mentality. But, you know, the world is complex and complicated. And I can't do it on my own. No one can. Um, and so why not say... I have a problem and I need help figuring it out. Uh, this inter- Lorna Davis talks about this interdependence that we need to start thinking about because um, especially if we want to include voices that aren't typically heard of, whether that's uh, people of color or more women or disabled people, all those things, they're going to, we, we need all the voices to be included to find solutions to the biggest problems. Uh, in an equitable sort of way, I think that's become extremely clear. Even if you don't think, you know, uh, we need to do that. Look at how how the cracks in our society that have been exposed by this pandemic in our healthcare system, in the the way that this the people who are most exposed to the virus um, are certainly people who don't have access to healthcare and other things. So, um, so I, I feel conflicted about that advice. I think, you know, with everything. Choose wisely at the moment. Find the balance between independence and dependence. Uh, I'm working on that in my own life as well. This is an unusual question, but I'm prone to liking unusual questions, and I hope that you will <laughs> accept this in, in the well-favoured way that it's expressed. Okay. You have two lovely children, and you have a husband. If you were to leave something in a time capsule, and we presume you're not leaving this world for a long time, but if you were to go on a long trip, we shall say, what would mm. be the key thing that you would want to leave them other than yourself? Hmm. That's a great question. And and I don't, this is going to sound like a cheesy answer, I think, but I uh, would leave them, and I don't think that they listen, I know my kids have definitely not, but... Um, all the podcasts that I have done since I would say 2015, but not before that, nothing before that. Um, after I did this project, the Born and Brilliant project, I suddenly really had a confidence in my own intellectual ability. Mm-hmm. It took me till I was 40 years old. Um, 
And I think that sort of released me from maybe some of the BBC way of talking about things uh, that you pretend that you know when you don't. Yes, I started yeah. to admit my vulnerabilities and the questions I had about the world. And, uh, and that is when my career began to flourish, which I was surprised by. Uh, I think that's a real lesson that um, I don't like the word authenticity because I think it's overused. But mm-hmm. um, being true to who, who, who you who you want to be, not who you are, but who you would like to be and talking about that, that's where the sort of interesting conversations happen. And I, I really try to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I found if we can talk shop for a moment, um, we've been doing uh, watching America for just a little bit over a year, but I have found that the mm. best times I have had is when I lose myself and forget actually I'm doing a, totally. a, a, a broadcast. And I just is get there a moment that you're thinking of right now? That uh, there's quite a few tomorrow? actually. Uh, you know, I'm, people kid me around here because I have a tendency at times to make people cry, not <laughs> not because of abuse, but I think that I I generally like people and I generally I, okay, I'll tell you the nutshell. I look at every single person I interview as a spirit, as a soul. Mm. That takes away the trappings of what they do. That takes away mm. their economic status and everything. I just look at them as a spirit and a soul. Now, I'm not quite sure even for myself exactly what that means, but I look at the, the try and find the essence of the person. I can't get there by will. I get there by intuition and accident. Mm-hmm. And and when I get there, it's it's extremely gratifying and lovely. Now I've talked a lot. I want to hear your response to to your experience. Yeah, no. For me, I think part of that is uh, selfish in that I've never been one for small talk. And why have a conversation if you're not going to have both your minds blown? I'm yes. a little bit greedy like that. Yeah. But on the other hand, also, you know, I think you and I are both making a request of a listener uh, to give us their time, and nothing is as precious as time. And so if mm. you have at listener have given me the, uh, the, the wonderful opportunity, I, I, w- I don't want to waste that moment. I, I, I want to deliver something to you that actually makes you think that that was time well spent. Yeah. I, I love those. Those moments are, it's what you live for, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's what makes it so exciting. Manoush Zomorodi, I am so delighted to have had you and I want to talk to you again. The next time you have a tomb of any sort or a book or anything new that's happening with Stable Genius Productions, please contact us. I would relish the opportunity to talk to you again. It's been utterly wonderful. It would be an honor. Thank you. I am happy to report that we're not finished yet, but we have another segment for your consideration. interested in our guest today, Hans Wilhelm. Hans Wilhelm was born in Germany and uh, as a young boy had some unusual circumstances, which we'll get into in a moment, uh, with his daddy having been in the war, a soldier during World War II, and um, had a very uh, intriguing life in a series of events. 
culminating in, obviously, the person he is today. Professionally, he has written or illustrated over 200 books, many of which have been translated into at least 30 languages and counting. But I came to notice him when I went on a search for a particular, well, topic that we wanted to do in Watching America, and that is the topic of boredom. And if you will, boredom being the, well, ironically, inspiration for creativity. And I found no better voice than indeed Hans Wilhelm when I looked at the video on TED Talks. So I am absolutely delighted to welcome him to Watching America this day. Welcome, Hans. Thank you so much, Alan. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to uh, start by um, a very intriguing and, and, and incredibly cinematic moment. Your father was taken prisoner um, in Germany. Uh, by Americans uh, as the war was coming to a conclusion. And there were certain restrictions. One of the restrictions, of course, is that they couldn't have correspondence from loved ones. Uh, But your mother did something very inventive. She sent a package. uh, Some people call them care packages today, but whatever. It was a package with sausage and um, some, some goodies to eat. And uh, he was called to a soldier, uh, American soldier, GI, who opened the box and immediately saw an envelope, which he tore up in front of your father, causing great dismay and sadness, I think, I would presume. But he gave him nonetheless the contents of the box, which included, amongst other things, a pipe. So he had this sausage, which he um, systematically split with uh, between seven other soldiers who were held captive. And um, and then he had the pipe. And as he went to try and light the pipe, he found that he couldn't draw on it. He couldn't get air to come through it. And so surreptitiously, very carefully, he detached the pipe. And he found, much to your mother's brilliance, that she had rolled very, very tightly a note to him. And would you like to tell the audience what the note read? Oh, it was very simple. It was today, on the 21st of September, our son Hans is born. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's ingenious. It was really uh, wondrous. And had your mother not written the letter, which she presumed would be ripped up, um, probably the American soldier would have been much more vigorous in in checking things out. But uh, fortunately for your family, or at least for your dad at that moment, he wasn't. How did your father deal with the fact uh, of World War II? It's not something you can ever um, walk away from when someone has had that s- such a horrific experience. I think like many people in the war who went through this horrible, horrible thing, they did not speak much about it. He was one of them who uh, just sort of, it was too horrible. He had seen too many deaths. He was on the Russian front and uh, he saw too many people dying and he was uh, totally disgusted. And he was so disgusted of war that uh, all his three sons, he tried everything. He said, if you don't want to go to the compulsory military service, I would do anything for you not to go. He didn't want any of his sons either to have military training, uh, which at that time was compulsory in Germany. And uh, so, no, he was very much against the war and what he experienced there, but he kept it to himself. But it's only at the end of uh, his life when we children pressed him to write down his memoirs and his memories and so on. Then he opened up a little bit and wrote a little bit about it. But for the most part, he kept it for himself. And I think that a lot of people did for survival reasons. A lot of Holocaust survivors did not speak about it and so on. They just kept it because the the, the only way to survive, I think, is just to move forward and don't look backwards for, for these horrors which have happened at that time. Now, you were born in Bremen, Germany, and uh, grew up and had your education. Eventually, you chose to live in South Africa for 12 years. What brought that about? Oh, 
the bad weather. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, yeah, it was really. And at that time, we had a different weather in North Germany. It really was raining in summer all the summer through. And I just don't do rain. I don't do cold weathers. And there were only three places I could go. One was Australia. The other was Canada. And the other one was South Africa, which allowed people to come. And Australia too far away. Canada was cold. And so that's South Africa. So that was there. And the moment I came to that country, I fell totally in love. I just was the best choice I ever made for me. And I had an incredible time there, I must say. Well, let's get to the topic at hand, which is uh, an examination of boredom. And you were speaking to uh, an audience about illustrating for children. Uh, You've done many uh, illustration, almost chalk talks, as some people used to call them. And on various topics, a lot of spiritual topics. But let's talk about specifically boredom. What is the remedy for boredom? Well, I'm not a therapist and I don't claim to be a total expert of boredom. I find it only what I, through my own exploration with myself and what I read and how it worked for me, I can only share that part from my own experience. And boredom to me is nothing but an uncomfortable feeling that comes up from us, uh, in us. And very often we don't know what it is, where it comes from, but it is this uncomfortable, squeezy feeling which makes us run away, run to the refrigerator, or do something else, get out the iPhone, whatever it is, but we don't want to deal with it. It's when we sit alone, when we do nothing at the moment, and this boredom comes up, and it's, it's an unpleasant feeling. And to me, this unpleasant feeling is a powerful message from what I would call our soul, or from our higher self, to deal with something which is now the time to deal with. Something, everything in life comes exactly at the right time. There are no accidents. So it's quite, it's not, it's no accident that we feel suddenly uh, uncomfortable. And it's helpful to explore what it is and has, can have many, many different reasons. It can be fear, it can be worries, it can be an old problem from the past. And in my TED talk, I talk about several issues when I had uh, boredom and I was facing with them, we can talk about that. And in each uh, each strange feeling which was coming up in me, eventually, when I dealt with it, turned into a story which I then used and made into a children's book. So we can uh, these feelings that are coming up, we do not always know where they come from. But what I found most helpful in my exploration is to love the feeling. Everything and everybody wants love including our feelings. And if we don't know where it comes from, because we can't really have the memory of what happened to our childhood, why we suddenly feel abandoned or whatever it is, and now comes up, at least love it. Totally love it. Feel the feeling. Do not suppress the feeling, but love it. And that's exactly what I have done during that period. And um, I really was, uh, I mean, I, I couldn't believe myself, all the stories which came out of this by just being willing to explore the feelings that are coming up in me. Well, let me ask you, um, Hans, you speak of feelings as if they are entities unto themselves. Do you believe that? You say love, you say everyone wants to be loved, including feelings, they want to be loved. Now, I understand the concept of embracing a feeling and not running away from it for it to be, if you will, a telltale, telltale indicator of something that perhaps we're not consciously dealing with. But uh, do you really envision feelings as being like entities? I wouldn't call entities, but I call them vibrations. Okay. Energies. Energies. I would call them energies. That I think everything is vibration. The whole universe is for energies and vibration. So and our feelings and emotions are also vibrations. 
And these vibrations are coming up and they give us some, some strange feelings. And if we cannot explore them, at least love them. And love really calms down and brings this vibration into another vibration, into a higher vibration. And then it no longer bothers us. And if we are lucky, like in my case, I could find out what was behind it and I could, I could start playing with it. Because what happened with me in my creative process, when it is an emotion which comes up and bothers me, it is unpleasant and it's really um, disturbing. It, it blocks the creative uh, flow. But once I've loved it and dealt with it, it merely is a memory. And when it then becomes a memory, then I can play with it. I no longer have the need to uh, to prove anything, to to make anything right or whatever it is. But then I've got I've got the playfulness of the memory which I do not have when I just have the emotional charge still in me. So let's walk through what actually happened. You say that this was basically the genesis of, of many children's books. So you find yourself bored. You, uh, as you've indicated, not comfortable with the feeling. You try and love the feeling or, if you will, accept the circumstances of the feeling. Uh, walk us through what happened next. Well, that's exactly as you say. It was sort of feeling, but for me, it was the boredom was for me very, very uh, unusual. I would say because I was a sales manager in Africa and, and very busy, a lot of people, friends, and then I came to America, where I knew very few people, and I was also I had chosen the career of a writer, which is one of the most isolating, most torturous kind of profession people can expect. So there suddenly I'm forced to sit by myself uh, throughout the day, sort of like we have people now in the like we have now in the lockdown here, with the coronavirus. Coronavirus. I, I would do that voluntarily uh, because it's part of my new profession. So I was sitting there and I was getting bored because sometimes you just have to wait to get replies and answers from the publishers and so on. And I had to deal with this feeling of boredom, which to that extent, I don't think I have felt consciously before so strongly. And when I realized that there are only two energies in, in, uh, in, in life, one is to give love and one is to receive love, it says, let's give this feeling love and shower it with love. Feel it totally. Do not I did not suppress it. I let, and by really sitting there, closing my eyes, feeling where it is in my body and really giving it love for a few minutes intensely and breathing deeply into this love, into this emotion. And suddenly there is a looseness, it becomes looseness. Suddenly it just loses all its, um, how shall I say, its pain, its, 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 its severeness. And, and so, slowly it says, oh, this is interesting, loneliness. This is an interesting feeling. Now I can play with it. And says, wow, this reminds me, maybe take a little bear who is lonely and so on. And out of this came a book about called Totally Boris, a little bear who is lonely, because I could play with it. It was no longer a disturbance. And it happened again several times. I mean, after a while, I was uh, um, lonely again. I had this feeling of loneliness. And basically, it was, uh, uh, I, I had a loss. It was, I felt alone because a friend of mine got married and he moved away. And um, I felt this intensely, sort of this, this sort of routine which we had of meeting and talking and so on. And uh, so I went into this loss feeling, loved this loss feeling, which I've discovered in me, which I initially thought is just boredom. But then it is, uh, as I looked at it closer, it's this loss feeling. And um, so then I could play with it and could then create a story about two friends and so on. And it became a book, Friends Are Forever. And I did this repeatedly. Each time when I was bored, there was a slightly different feeling there. 
And I went into the feeling, and in most cases, I could find out what it was and what, it, uh, what this uncomfortable feeling was. And thank God I looked into it, because out of this, I opened myself up to the creative flow, and I could then play with these uh, concepts, with these emotions, and could create stories. You have written about art. In fact, you've produced a, a series of videos. And when I say series, I mean lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of them on various topics, one of which is on the creativity uh, and uh, the spiritual aspect of, of art. Some weeks back, um, we had Jerry Saltz, who is the senior art critic for New York Magazine. And before that, he was uh, with the Village Voice. And we had an extended conversation about the merits of art and, and its purpose. Uh, you see it as a matter with strong spiritual parallel all the way through it. Uh, one of the things that you discussed in your video is the, is the concept of order and disorder and that which is, in, in, in essence, nourishing for the soul. Now, the philosopher Sir Roger Scruton wrote and produced a, a BBC series called Why Beauty Matters. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that one. I Isn't love... it very good? It's, oh, it's, it's yeah. a wonderful series. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, why does beauty matter? Maybe we can't explain it from our head, but this is where we feel drawn to all the time. That's why the museums and music halls or whatever it is draw thousands of people freely to because we want to encounter beauty because I think we have to be reminded of who we are, that there is more to life than what our daily mundane kind of life is showing us. There is such beauty in it, and this beauty is not out of us. It's also in us. And the artist has the, the, the task to, to, to lift us up. As Picasso said, art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. I mean, that is what art can do to us. Art can bring us, make us taller, 10 inches taller. Mm. We go to the right concert, we go see the right art, and it, we become out inspired and stronger. And artists are these powerful people who can do this. Very few people and professions can do this to make people really feel better about themselves. And we artists have that power, and I think we should use it. The term arite was used, uh, and it means to ascend that which is good, the pursuit of the best, the beautiful. And for centuries, artists have striven to to get to that level, to that achievement of, of, as you say, having the soul at least aesthetically uh, ascend. You have spoken uh, dismissively, understandably, about what you call shock value in contemporary art. In fact, you quote at one point Tom Wolfe. Yes. And you take a quote where he said, contemporary art would be considered a ludicrous joke if otherwise bright people hadn't elevated it to a higher plane, upon which a lot of money changes hands. Uh, you've, you speak of embracing. You've really embraced that quote. You, you use it in your work, in your piece. Um, kindred spirits regarding that matter? Oh, I totally. I totally agree. I totally agree that a lot of the modern art, what we call, is, is really uh, schlock. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to say so, because you go to 20, and I used to do this in Manhattan. I go, we go to 10 or 15 galleries a day, and maybe two galleries have really some, have some art which, which lifts you up. All the others are often showing the pain of the artist. 
And that's why it is so often so disturbing and not necessarily fulfilling. It may be shocking. It may have a shock value to see some horrible stuff drawn there or painted or whatever it is, but it's not uplifting. And in, in most cases, it is that the artist himself still has very deep personal issues, and he tries to put it on the canvas or in three-dimensional form and thinks he or she has to share it with the world, when in truth, he or she might want to work on this first and then do the artwork. Firstly, clear up your own mess and then do the work. Because if you go by the old masters, by the Mozart, uh, Michelangelo, you name everybody, Rembrandt and so on, they didn't show their mess, their personal mess. They all had personal mess, including Van Gogh, really, who didn't sell a picture. He never complained in that. He didn't show the nastiness of his life or whatever it is. And that is something where the artist, I feel, has to transcend. He has to. He doesn't have to be perfect, but he doesn't have to bring his own ego level into the art world. He, of course, has the freedom to do so, but don't be surprised if not everybody likes it. So let me ask you, if I may, Hans, is the world a better or a worse place for Edward Monk's scream? <laughs> I knew you would bring that. And I didn't know, but I said this is the one exception. It's, uh, is it a better place? People can identify when he's, he definitely showed his personal issues on all his paintings. And I guess there's room for that as well. Identification? Uh, does it help people? Maybe it does help people. We wouldn't have the blues without it. Uh, we wouldn't have the blues without it. Although I sometimes always smile when I hear this, these uh, codependency songs. I mean, the blues are mostly codependency. I mean, I die because you're not there and I can only live without you. Yes, <laughs> utter codependency. And, but it's the music. It's actually the sound more than the text, which is so beautiful. And uh, the sound, is, a sound makes the message abstract. Well, to be honest, it's kind of manufactured misery. I mean, <laughs> many blues artists have had quite good lives and, and financially successful lives. So, I think you know. it's quite perfectly. Yes, yes, it is right. No, there are exceptions of all, all the way and so on, and I agree. But I, my personally feel is, does this art make me feel better? I have no time anymore. I don't watch television shows anymore where this is not, where this doesn't enrich me or inform me. I, and I have also no time to go to either to concerts or to galleries where these things are not at least I can hope for and uh, to see. So I just, uh, time is too precious for me. It's the only luxury we have, and I don't waste it on stuff which makes me more miserable. Let me ask you a question, Hans, uh, and let me just remind the audience, we're talking to my new friend, Hans Wilhelm, on Watching America, and he has written or illustrated over 200 books for children and adults, and also has had his work translated into no less than 30 languages and counting, and I am delighted to have him as my guest here today. Um, as an author of children's books, what is the most important message if you will, the, the paramount message that we should be giving children? Whenever we make a story or we create something, particularly in writing, the message that comes up in our story is always firstly meant for ourselves. Whatever issue I'm writing about, as I gave the example earlier, it's firstly meant for myself. Everything wow. that comes up in my awareness, consciousness, you understand, is for myself. It's a message for myself. I have to mm. deal with it first. Mm. And when I have dealt with it, only then can I really play with it. 
and cannot and can really see different concepts. So then I will continue. And I don't think it's so much the message as well when the book is then done. It's as long as it's entertaining, as long as it's fun, as long as it touches us and maybe opens up to new worlds. And as Morris Sendak said, there should be always an element of fantasy in every book, otherwise it's dull. Um, so that we can do so many wonderful things to, cre uh, to create new worlds. And I think the messages or the morals of books I'm usually careful with um, because you never know how you touch uh, the ch a person, a reader, any reader, not only child. Everybody takes something different from a book. And uh, therefore, uh, heavy morals is usually not really working. Kids don't want to be moralized. But give it, make it entertaining. Make it like Harry Potter. I wish I could write like that. Uh, make it really entertaining and make it wonderful. And then the child will learn from it in its own way, whatever the child needs to take from. The heavy message giving, I don't know. Uh, yes, some of my books have got messages in it. But very often when I get letters from the children uh, back or write to me, they take out something totally different, something which I never intended. And I think that is the good thing about really good art, that you take something uh, out of it which maybe the author or the, the creator of the artist had not never intended, something very different. So you touch people in a different way, hopefully positively. One of the things um, that I would say is you have a very open and generous and I think extremely kind spirit, and I, I like that. I like Thank you that. very much. I like that. Thank you so much. Hans, stay in touch with us. I'd love to have you on the show again. It was a great, great pleasure and a great honor to be on your show. Oh, likewise. Lovely to meet you, and thank you so much, my new friend. Take care and God bless. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. And each time I feel like this inside There's one thing I want to know What's so funny about peace, love and understanding? Ooh, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding? Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.